Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Good Apples, a podcast about Law & Order SVU, the real-life events that inspired the show, and the worldview of the man himself, Dick Wolf. I am Josiah. I'm Kamara. I'm Josh. And I'm Jackal. And that's the show, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to episode zero. I believe the title that uh, Chimera wanted us to use was Three Dudes, a Chick, and a Dick. Uh, so that's, that's that. Yeah. Uh, real quick. Laugh track. Laugh track. <laughs> Everybody laugh at my jokes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. So this is uh this is kind of our yeah our episode zero here our non-official episode where we just quickly say who we are and all that all that good shit and a little bit about what we are planning to do with this show. Um, we're going to go around and quickly introduce ourselves though. Um, I know some of you listening to this probably know us from our various other projects already, but if you don't, it would be good to you know fill everyone in. So I guess I will start and say that my name is Josiah. Like I said, I am. Oh, uh, I believe we were doing pronouns for this as well. I am he, him, and I come from a couple different podcasts that I've done in the past. I did a show called Very Legal, Very Cool. It was about uh, tech and uh, conspiracy theories and all sorts of fun politics-y stuff. And now I do a podcast called Mammonberg with one of the other people on this show and uh, sometimes another one, depending on when he shows up, something <laughs> <laughs> we invite him on. Um called Mammonberg, which is a Christian leftist podcast uh, about, uh, yeah, Christianity and leftist politics. Um, yeah, and we'll probably get into more of what I do later on as things go on and I guess some of my own personal shit. But yeah, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, Chimera? Hi, uh, I'm Chimera. Um, my real name is Kelly, um, and I've, I'm actually Josiah's girlfriend, and we've been dating for uh, three years now, so... We decided it would be truly comedic to bring our, you know, usual dumpster fire of a relationship <laughs> onto, onto, onto a recorded line for people to to listen to. So, um, I'm excited to argue. I'm yeah, I'm excited to argue with my boyfriend in front of you all. This is your first podcast too, which is exciting. This is my first podcast. Um, I've never done a podcast before. Um, in terms of other projects I've worked on, um, I was a big debate nerd in high school and college. Mm -hmm. um, so in college, I actually became a three-time national debate champion um, oh, yeah. in several different events. So that's kind of my fun little, my, my fun fact is that I, I won national debate tournaments, uh, not one, not two, but three years in a row, um, and only got stopped due to COVID. So... That's my, yeah. my one, my one, my one thing to be proud of. Uh, so, yeah. um, that, that whenever I got to do that, um, actually the topic was on police misconduct one year. Um, mm. and the, the debate case I ran was, uh, steeped in feminist and critical race theory. And I lost every round because of it. It was not popular in the Midwest <laughs> at all. I, oh I lost God. every single round, every single round, the whole season. I was very depressed. I was very much like, oh, is this even for me? Am I even good at this? But you got me into a black neighborhood in Tennessee and you got me in front of black judges and they were sympathetic to a debate case won. speaking out against police misconduct. And I finally won. And that's how I got a national championship 
on a topic on police misconduct. So oh, I wonder why um, neighbor it, like it so was, that specific demographic would be would be interested yeah. in that specifically. I wonder if that's going to be a theme yeah. we'll be exploring a lot in this. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I um the the specific topic I had talked about was the shackling of pregnant prisoners, which is a practice by which um, women in prison uh, are forced to give birth literally in handcuffs and manacles. Um, they put manacles around their ankles, their their wrists, as well as their um, their torsos. Um, and women are forced to give give birth in these conditions, and it um it 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 has cost women, several women and several uh, babies, their life. So Jesus. that was one of the things that I was speaking out against that season. Um, so I was very, very proud of that project. I got to learn a lot um, and I got to learn to advocate for something other than myself. Um, so it, it was, it had a meaningful impact in my life. Mm -hmm. We should probably move on here to Josh. Uh, hey everybody, I'm Josh. Um, most recently I've been uh, somewhat somewhat frequent get uh guest co-host on mammonberg yeah you um, filled in as co-host last summer yeah 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 so uh did some of that i have a podcast called odd splice that's about movies that is currently on hiatus as of this recording but i'm sure we'll get back up and running at some point because synergy this <laughs> 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 So yeah, that's uh that's my podcasting career. Um and yeah, yeah. So I've got a background mostly in, you know, all the good stuff like liberal arts stuff, so and 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 some production and uh pop culture analysis and and all that. And uh yeah, it turns out uh Law and Order SVU seems to be at the center of or of a lot of overlapping obsessions of mine. Uh, and I think that it kind of, a, it, it kind of serves that function for everybody on this podcast. Like, yes, it does. Somehow it's, it's got like, uh, I don't know. I've, I've been explain, explaining myself, justifying myself to other people by, uh, saying I'm a student of atrocity and, uh, <laughs> uh, just because, uh, I mean, well, yeah, any mammon, any given Mammonberg appearance, uh, you know, we tend to talk about some pretty dark stuff. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. And I, it's just been, uh, I, I don't know. I've had dark, dark fascinations about war and war crimes and, um, you know, true crime, police brutality and kind of, uh, anything bad that can happen to a person has kind of, uh, <laughs> Become an I, interest. I, I have to find out about it for some yeah. reason. So, yeah. uh, do some investigating. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yep. So, uh, yeah, kind of want to take uh, all that other, like, you know, fun critical theory, political philosophy, you know, big, all, you know, trying to justify all the money I spent to read a bunch of, bunch of long, boring books. Uh, <laughs> I can apply it to uh, Law and Order SVU. <laughs> Law and Order SVU. So, uh, yeah. yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I would say, I would say, I think uh, the one of the themes here is, is all of us having a, uh, college degrees that we're trying to justify uh with podcasts now <laughs> yeah i'm because i'm sure as shit not using any of those skills I, uh, i'm not i'm not using it, my history it, and philosophy in my real anywhere. job yeah <laughs> um probably move on to last but certainly not least jackal hello hello everybody uh if you're coming in from the other podcast that i'm on semi-regularly i am the other co-host of Mammonberg. 
Uh, if you know me, you probably know me either from that show or you also know me from being on Twitter, which uh, to date this episode is apparently going to change to X tomorrow. So that <laughs> is very funny. Other than that, what the uh, fuck? For, for the, what? for the, for, I know what. For the Sorry. time capsule, yeah. for the time capsule, for those who try to listen to this show like ten years, if we still are doing it in ten years, and they're going back to the beginning, we are currently at twenty twenty three when Twitter is chaos because of Elon Musk buying it right now. So that's what's going on in the world right here, right now for us. But uh, you probably know me from there. Or you just, uh, you've seen me around yelling about something or other. Uh, I have had a long and complicated relationship with SVU. <laughs> I'm from New York. That's another thing that I think uh, kind of makes me qualified to talk about SVU. I also have a college degree, um, and I've done a lot of writing about, uh, you know, activism, uh, black the Black Power Movement, police brutality and police misconduct so uh, this is something that i've been in the ballpark around for quite a little bit and i have also lived in new york my entire life and the show svu has kind of always been this background thing i think in every new yorker's life even if you don't think about it svu is one of the biggest primetime television shows about New York, and for a lot of people, it has colored their perception of what New York is and what the NYPD is. So that has always laid a very special interest to me. It also was one of the first examples of quote-unquote adult television I was exposed Mm -hmm. to as a child, of storytelling that was edgy and grown-up, that for me... About hard subjects... Yeah. Yeah, that dealt with subjects that weren't that felt grown up. Um now the way that they dealt with those subjects were sometimes good, sometimes uh quite and bad. And we're going to have a whole podcast to explore that. That's that's the that's the uh <clears throat> that is the whole litmus of the show is that it's been a fascination of mine. Media analysis has always been a little pet project that I enjoy delving into and talking about one of the still one of the biggest shows on television and one that is about my hometown and one that for a lot of people colors their perception of what policing is is going to be an interesting journey you know what i'm glad you said that because i think that's a really good transition into us talking about what the name means um so yeah yeah. uh, we are the good apples and as that kind of uh is a reference to as you probably hear all the time you know the classic oh police are uh you know the the police aren't that bad it's just a few bad apples right and what i'm kind of what we kind of are, are going to be off and on arguing is that that SVU serves kind of a role in our society as like in in the U.S. as kind of the the fantasy scape that we can look at when we're wanting to see of the good apples, you know? Yeah, yeah, the guy who shot Trayvon, he's a bad apple. But Olivia Benson, well, he's a good apple. You know what I mean? Or she's a good apple. You know, like that's that's kind of uh, kind of what it. Um, yeah. She is the model of what uh, what what putting women on the police force will do. Yeah, it'll fix it up. It'll make things good, right? Right? And of course, Elliot Stabler has his famous, like, reoccurring statistic that's in the show. What is it? Like, how many, what is this, clo- like, case close percentage? 90, 97%. Which is not possible. 
<laughs> like even if you uh, were the case, most good-hearted cop in the world like a, a yeah. case closure rate of 97 percent that's insane because the real numbers are closer to six to 13 percent so Elliot Stabler is exactly what I'm talking about when I say like a is the fantasy of the the good cop. You know, he's solved 97% of his cases. Wow. Man, yeah, it's hard not to just like, you know, we are not even discussing an episode in this episode and it's hard not to just like discuss the episode we watched, but <laughs> we'll, um, we'll get to it. <laughs> no, I but no, yeah, 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 it's it's that yeah. Oh, right. No, I do know what I want to say. Um no, just playing off off the title, the good apples. You know, the bad apples. Um, that that cliche is a misreading of the original saying, which is, so I I'm sure there's more to it, but it's like a few bad apples spoil the bunch. The bunch. Yep. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're removing the few bad apples, but there is a lot of ignorance around. Well, how and why did they spoil the bunch? But yeah, the premise of SVU is like. What if, what if the two best cops, yeah, kicked ass. Uh, uh, yeah, just kicked ass and, 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 and we're going after like the real monsters, you yeah, know, no one's going to defend we pedophiles can... and rapists, you know? What right. I mean? Yeah. Like... Yeah. <laughs> Have you been oh, on Twitter? And... Well, okay. Let me take that. Yeah. Let me take yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I will say to turn that phrase on its head that uh, a few bad apples uh, ruined the bunch is Dick Wolf seems to believe that uh, a few good apples um, will <laughs> fixes will, the bunch. will yeah. will fix it. Um, <laughs> so we'll we'll certainly get into that more as the show goes on. I'm sure. Yeah. I also wanted to. Uh, I want to go a little bit in the history of that phrase "good apple" and you know what it comes from the bad apple. Um, if we're cool with that. Yeah. So as far back as history can kind of note it, the phrase bad apple seems to have come from a early 16th century proverb from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, In it, the apprentice chef named Perkin is asked to be let go from servitude on the rationale that his habits of drinking, vice, and debauchery are going to rub off on his colleagues. Uh, The way that the old English goes is, well, Bet is rotten apple out of hoard, then that is rotty old that remnant. Uh, <laughs> oh, cut, cut that out. I'm not reading old English. <clears throat> uh, well, better. I'm not. I'm not doing that. I. This is a garbage language. <clears throat> well, better is a rotten apple out of the store than that is rot all the remnant. And from there, it would appear in other works from Benjamin Franklin to it filtered on the Anglosphere from there and became a phrase I think that we're all kind of synonymous with is that it's about staying away from from that bad people can corrupt uh can corrupt things and in you know the second great awakening in tuned America the phrase had religious connotations that it was a warning to stay away from sinners because they would corrupt you it was it's about corruption mm-hmm. and corrupting influences hmm. now hmm. the phrase in terms of how it relates to its modern usage uh is quite storied one of the first invocations of bad apples in relation to actions of the United States goes back to Abu Ghraib, where the Bush administration's response to accusations of brutal torture of prisoners was that it was a few bad apples. Um, I have a quote here 
from uh, Sewell Sean and Jackie Spinner. Uh, a senior U.S. Uh, official said Thursday that Sanchez was surprised by the severity of the abuses and apparent lack of response by the military police unit's officers. One of the things that General Sanchez was concerned about was the fact that this was more than one bad apple, one bad incident. Mm-hmm. And we have other sort of indications from this longer, uh, these longer excerpts coming from the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, all of these using the term bad apples, the surprise that the U.S. military, you know, had the, how did we, how did these bad apples, you know, go under the radar? And even before Abu Ghraib, the term bad apple was specifically, it was used specifically in the context of policing following the aftermath of the beating of Rodney King and the trial after and the L.A. riots. Um, I have a few excerpts from various press outlets that use that term from the 90s. He, Diane Sanders, also said that he had no hard feelings towards police. One bad apple doesn't spoil the whole bunch, he said, referring to Herb Coas, mm. the off-duty police officer who was working as a security guard at Riverfront Stadium and got into an argument with Sanders that led to the charges. <clears throat> City government spring doctors are trying to depict the police department's problems as a matter of insufficient bu- budgets and a few bad apples. Meanwhile, many nervous mm-hmm. citizens mm-hmm. are calling for a federal takeover of the cops. That's from the New Republic. I think the citizens of Baltimore are outraged, said William H. Murphy. We need the police very badly. We wish them well, but we resent deeply how how they police in the black community. I'm not indicating all the police, he said. It only takes a few rotten apples to spoil the barrel, but this is more than a few rotten apples. This is an institutional pattern of long standing. The Baltimore Sun. These all preceded Abu Ghraib, but very quickly became baked into the national narrative of how police misconduct and policing are talked about in the country. This went from every single death of every single black man within this country is followed by the media narrative of a few bad apples, either coming Mm -hmm. from pro-police sides saying that, you know, it's just a few bad apples to more reform-minded sides saying that, well, a few bad apples do spoil the bunch. The issue with this narrative, of course, is not that it's untrue that a few bad apples spoil the bunch. The narrative is that policing as an institution is rotten to the core because that was the intention behind it. The fact that policing originated via slave patrols in the South and union busting in the North. How policing very early on was racialized. How racial narratives around who was the aggressor and who was the victim and where their places within society come from were never discussed. And this is across the political aisle in modern American politics. Joe Biden used a few bad apples metaphor when he defended uh, policing post George Floyd. Donald Trump famously has used it many, many times in several Dallas speeches and is beloved by the NYPD. This is a phrase that is used every time police misconduct occurs um, with the ostensible perception that these are outliers. These actions are not the norm for the police. And what I find interesting about SVU and how this name fits, it's that everyone within SVU, the characters that we follow in SVU, as the show goes on, we will find out 
more about them, but we'll introduce the, the, the core cast that we should be concerned about for this chunk of the series as long as this goes goes on. These are the good apples. These are the people that you should trust. These are the exemplars of good policing. And what I yeah. hope comes through on this show is that that is fundamentally not true in yeah. any way. Um, real quick, Kelly, did you want to say anything? Because I know you have this note before we move on to... I, I, I did want to build off of what Jackal was saying a bit, um, that there truly are no good apples in a system as rotten to the core as, um, as, as the United States policing departments are. But in Dick Wolf's universe, there are some good apples. And that is what we're going to get to uh, explore, or at least there's some portrayals of some good apples. Um, and that's that's something that I'm excited to explore in the show. Um, I had done a little bit of research um, for, um, for this exact question. And I had read an essay by Mark Anthony Neal entitled The Myth of the Good Cop. Pop culture helped turn police officers into rock stars and black folks mm-hmm. into criminals. Um, in this essay, he calls out several shows, including SWAT, which he recalls as first discovering the SWAT team or the SWAT unit. Um, he first discovered kind of the response he had to it when he realized that it was developed as a response to the Watts riots of the night of 1965. Um, He highlighted that Law and Order is a show that depicts Black officers as being evacuated from Black life and community. He says that the franchise reveals little about the stories of Odafin Tutuola for nearly 20 years. And I very much agree with that assertion, uh, as we'll, we'll likely go on to talk more about Finn, no doubt, uh, as Ice-T is one of the best characters, if not the best character in the in Law & Order SVU. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I'd like to add that uh, Monique Jeffries, um, the only black female detective the show briefly features, is booted off the squad for sexual promiscuity. And in fact, uh, we'll go on to talk Ooh. about the first episode of Law & Order uh. SVU. Um is her 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 main contribution to the conversation is sexual jokes <laughs> yeah and that's, yeah and that's and that's that's the only black female character cop that they write into the show is is an overly sexualized characterization that is just is just ridiculous um it it aptly depicts the notion that um that black women are are hypersexual or inappropriate or can't adhere to professional standards um, is is one of those those big notions that black women have to overcome this idea that they're not professional um and also uh, sexualizing them too yeah specifically sexual yeah, yeah yeah um as a whole these characters are compliments to the purposes of propaganda serving as examples of black exceptionalism on one hand while suggesting that policing is race neutral but criminality is not um so i think mark anthony neal's point was was really amazing there is um is he made the point that 
um, Finn Tutuola and Monique Jeffries serve as um, examples of black exceptionalism, except Monique Jeffries is crashes and burns in the show. She gets booted mm-hmm. off the show. Um, but Finn Tutuola is really our like exceptional black cop character. And he portrays often, as we'll talk about later in the show when we talk more about um, some episodes that that feature race as a central discussion that he views and a lot of people in SVU view their policing work as race neutral. They at least view what they do to be as race neutral. Maybe other policing departments, not as much, but definitely their own. Now, you may have heard everything we've just said, right? All the all the kind of spiel, the long spiels we've kind of just gone on here. And you, if you're a more right leaning maybe listener, perhaps are like, oh man, this this bunch of woke scolds here cannot enjoy a piece of television. I would also like to add the other aspect of the show. All four of us love this show. Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> I, I hate to yeah. admit it, but man, uh, going back to watch the show was like like going to see an old friend oh, that man. says stuff that yeah. really, really you do not want to repeat. But man, you have a good time all the yeah. same. Yeah, it, because yeah. Because the reality is, is it is impeccably good television. Like it is. It is great, and that's that's kind of it, right? We have the political tension with the show. But we also admit it's got some pretty good, you know, good writing, good drama, everything you want. And also, um, I don't know if you were planning to bring this up, Chimera, or not, but, um, you know, also, like, there's, it's it's got a weird, ambiguous relationship with all this stuff. Because while, yeah, it's reactionary as hell when we're talking about cops, it also, like, sometimes does better job at talking about, like, consent and rape and stuff like that than most TV shows were doing at this time. Um, which is weird. It's a hard thing to parse through, I think. I want to make some joke like it's, it's uh right, it's like the socially fiscally oh my god, uh oh, socially yeah, liberal yeah. fiscally conservative. Uh <laughs> yes. it's, it's, oh my so, god. It's, it's, that's socially that's its approach to poli- policing conservatives, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. It's uh I don't know. It's. I mean, it has the same problem that any U.S. cop drama does. Like it. It just. It. It can't think beyond a world with police. It. The. The institute. Like all these shows. Like I was. I was talking about The Wire with a friend earlier today because I was kind of like discussing the whole project with them. Um, how even even that show can't admit that policing is a fundamentally corrupt institution, even though it is such a studied, uh, it's such a great study of how like policing itself destroys a city. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, and, it, uh, I mean, David Simon and Dick Wolf are, are contemporaries in a lot of ways and they're working in a similar medium. You know, Dick Wolf is just the, the popular, you know, the pop guy and, and, and David Simon got to be the, the prestige, um, drama mm. guy. Um, and yeah, to be so clear, even, like, yeah. um, there are shows that do this worse than SVU. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yes. <laughs> like, a lot worse. Uh, one show to bring to mind is Blue Bloods, which somehow, imagine further right-wing Law & Order, is how I would describe <laughs> it. Like, imagine if Law & Order just wasn't good about, like, consent. <laughs> that That's what Blue Bloods is. <laughs> oh, man. I love yeah. Blue Bloods. <laughs> oh my god. I, I love Blue Oh my Bloods. god, Chimera. Oh my god. We I, Oh my god. I love me a police procedural. 
I I hate to say it. Uh, I don't know how I'm how I call myself a police in prison abolitionist. Um, when I just love I love some yummy Chicago PD or some <laughs> Law and Order SVU Blue Bloods any anything like it. Uh, I enjoy watching it. And that's uh, that is the tension of the show. Um, and I think we could move on here and say, do we all want to talk about like each kind of go around and give our kind of relationship to the show? We've given a little bit about that about it, but you know, we could get a little more on that, like our personal relationship to the show and maybe just the genre of like crime and police procedural media overall, why we like it. What, what's what our yeah. What our history is with it and stuff. Um, yeah. Why don't yeah, we go backwards absolutely. and start with Jackal since we've had Jackal go last quite a bit. We'll, uh, we'll have you go first. This sure. Time. Sure, I can. Uh, I can absolutely do that. So, as I mentioned in my kind of about me section of the show, I started watching Law and Order SVU from maybe far younger than I should have because it was always on. That was the background noise in our house was Law and Order. Now, you know, to the chagrin of some family members, but. It was a show that you just would have on, and you wouldn't necessarily even need to pay attention to it, but you could get the the broad strokes of it from the episode summary, and you could just hop in and watch whenever. It was more on than the original uh, Law & Order. It was on more than Criminal Intent. SVU was considered, like, the default show you would just have on. Um, obviously not while you're eating dinner, because, man, this show could get really graphic <laughs> with some of the descriptions that happened in it, but... It would just be something that would be on. Uh, Benson and Stabler were, I think, some of the outside of comic book characters. I think that they were some of the first pop culture figures that I sort of recognized as a child. You know, outside of like Batman, Superman, yeah, yeah, the Xenomorph from Alien, the Predator, all like they were alongside that. And these are media characters that you just know about. They're iconic. And because of that, that's why I have such a difficult relationship with the show. As Josiah said, I am a police abolitionist. This is a rotten system that kills so many innocent people. But also, I like a good police procedural. I do. A good police procedural is has the same appeal to me as a good mystery novel. I like when they're a little bit more self-conscious about the duality that they're dealing with. It's why shows like True Detective, The Wire, um, We Own This City, why stuff like that always is appealing. But I think just broadly, the appeal of the police procedural goes back to something like Sherlock Holmes. There's something appealing about a group of characters that you can relate to solving a mystery. That's why Scooby-Doo has lasted for as long as it has. We like a good mystery and we like people solving it, even more so when there's morality tied to it. And for me, that's why the police procedural has always been attractive. The story format is so perfect, I would say. Like, the the format of a police procedural is so perfect for good storytelling and good characterization that it, for me, is almost like a default position for a lot of media is... What kind of cop is it? Is it uh, are they space cops? Are they spooky cops? Are they uh, federal cops? Are they local cops? Is there some kind of mm. uh, some dark mystery behind them as an institution? Or are they are disco they... Elysium cops? 
are they Disco Elysium cops? Which I would list also as an example of police procedural media that is very aware of police procedural media. There is... Yeah. There were detective novels written by communists. There were detective novels written by um, some of the most far-right people that they probably would make. Uh, <laughs> even even Hitler think, come on, guys, go, go a little <laughs> slow here. I don't, I don't believe that we're all Atlanteans. Come on. I there's just there's just something so appealing about this story format that it allows you to have such unique characters and characterizations that for me I think that that's what appeals that that is what is appealing about this genre and format more mm-hmm. than anything else you get some really wild people in it and for me a good character no matter what the genre will make me stick with something. You know, that's kind of like uh, Bella's dad, Charlie, in uh, No, we're moving on. Twilight. We're, we're not, on. no, uh, no, no, We're no, not no. doing Twilight on this Bill- podcast. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. <laughs> Bill- Billy Billy Burke makes an excellent cop. We'll do an episode. That'll be our 100th episode. Okay, Josh. Uh, no, don't promise that. Don't promise that. Oh, no. We'll talk about Twilight on Patreon No, I don't want to talk about that thing again. I've, I've watched the movie once and it was enough. No, please. Josh, there, what's your relationship to SVU? Yeah, uh, yeah like, like anyone else here, I mean, it's been a pretty constant companion for most of my life. Uh, you know, came out in 1999. I remember when it first debuted uh, and being extremely not allowed to watch it at that time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, like like everyone, a lot of my initial pop culture tastes were, you know, shaped by my parents and my 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 folks were pretty. And I think my mom especially was really into is really into uh police procedurals and medical dramas you know just the 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 constant slate of of network drama uh yeah they're they're into it i don't know i I feel like i've gotten a good sampling of like all the various eras of of the police procedural like i watched a lot of dragnet as a kid because you know it's an evangelical household so like (laughs) it's just assumed that uh old tv shows are safe Oh man, um, the the, the amount of fucking the amount of fucking Dragnet. Leave It to Beaver I watched. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Jeez, so much yeah, so much Andy houses. Griffith. Um, but yeah, that but but yeah, we could get into like Dragnet and uh, Adam Twelve. That was a pretty good one. Uh, about like beat cops. Um, actual yeah. Right, other stuff. So I don't know. Yeah, there was a lot of like OG Law and Order on in the in the house which was like more just like general <laughs> like street crime i guess i did because it was more it it just watched a lot of police procedurals as a kid as as anyone does because uh, there's just a lot of them on um but there was there was that mystique around special victims unit and i wasn't you know and initially allowed to kind of see it or be around it but uh you know i think by the time i was like 13 it was like oh okay you're ready you're ready to handle this stuff now <laughs> um and then uh yeah i mean it's just uh right it's not as dry as the uh as the original law and order like there is something about mm-hmm. the subject matter and you know the sort of 
the the prurience of it that really keeps you coming back like yeah because there it's not a graphic show it's mostly people talking in rooms it's a chamber drama uh with the occasional shootout but yeah like the the graphic violence is all in the dialogue so you you it's do in your hear, head yeah yeah and you just hear these descriptions of just the most heinous acts that that human beings can commit on each other and then you're seeing these people like act out the feelings and the trauma i mean that's yeah it's incredibly addicting drama um and it really i yeah i mean i think it appeals to everybody's darker side you you know everybody kind of wants to like you know know why people try commit these acts in the first place uh you know everybody's Mm -hmm. interested in the psychology of it um so uh yeah it was on and yeah it really as as jackal said yeah i think it shaped a lot of my early views about policing and the function of policing and uh even you know views of like the big city or new york or or anything like that so um yeah yeah it it felt like a, a again evangelical household it it felt like a a, a window into uh the uh the, the outside the evil world. secular world mm-hmm. yeah and the you know oh they're oh yeah leave the safety so that's kind of the i think the attitude that my household brought into it it's like oh look at them out there it's all fucked up stay in here where it's safe you know and this is again you know the show itself 99 by the third season 9 11 happens it affects the tone of everything so um i don't know yeah like i think i think a lot of psychology happened to me between the years of 1999 and 2008 so and we're going to delve super deep into it, dig those traumatizing <laughs> memories up and deal with them on a, on a monetized yeah. content for stream. Exactly. God, yeah. And now that I think of it, it is, it is like ground zero for a lot of future interests. Like it, it, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. It, you know, where do you go from here? It's Oh, true crime. <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, this is uh, it's got a, a definitely a very big relationship to true crime um, that we'll probably get into quite a bit as well. Um, Chimera, why don't you talk about your relationship to the show? Yeah, sure. I um, I'm actually a really big fan of the show. Um, I've watched through the show com- at least five or six times in the past <laughs> decade. I um, really, really enjoy the show, and I really enjoy it as a comfort show. Um, I grew up watching Law and Order, and there was never an age when I was too young to watch Law and Order. My mom did it as an educational tool for me to learn about sex and sexual abuse. Um, so it, it was always okay for me to watch Law and Order SVU in the household because my mom wanted me to learn about these kinds of things. Um, so she was always fine with me watching that show at a very young age. So it has for better or worse, become my comfort show. Um, So I do kind of just binge watch the show. And uh, Josiah had to adjust to this quickly when he started dating me. Mm -hmm. It's because I do just kind of keep that show playing in the background frequently. And it's very off-putting to hear about someone getting sexually assaulted while you're eating dinner. And I had never, I had never processed it completely. as Like, I always thought that um, that subject matter was always appropriate to talk about. Um, And that's probably because of my own personal history. Um, I am a sexual assault survivor, and um, I do still suffer from PTSD from it. 
Um, and the show, sometimes it, it, it really hits me as a survivor. I have endured not one, not two, but many sexual assault experiences. And having it on the TV is just like another asset of life for me. So um, it has definitely been kind of maybe not the ap most appropriate outlet. However, it does give me the kind of satisfaction of seeing perverts go for, um, you know, doing sexual crimes. Hello and welcome to the Technical Difficulties Corner. This is Josiah editing the episode right now. Right around here, Chimera's microphone started to go out, and we had to quickly rush her into a different room so she could share a mic with me. Now we're going to return to the episode, this time with her on my mic. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to emphasize was that I believe that an in interrogation of the show through a feminist lens is necessary. I think at some times the show will hold up in a feminist lens and in other ways, not a lot. You know, like I've said, I believe in police and prison abolition. Um, so being both a feminist and an abolitionist, these two things will contradict. Um, a lot of people like to pretend that those two things don't contradict, but they certainly do at times. Um, the, the debates between race and gender have always been complicated, to say the least, um, in, in ways that they intersect historically. Um, but I'm at a point in my life where I believe that contradictions in belief are fine, um, and they're kind of an unavoidable facet of my life. So in, in a true girl boss fashion, I am uh, taking on the role of the research arm of the podcast. So you're going to find that some of the texts that I bring will be in conflict with each other because I will both bring feminist literature as well as um, some texts that uh, concern police abolition and race and critical race theory. Um, and those things will reflect both kind of my scatterbrain, um, contradictory worldview. Um, but also my belief in providing a well-rounded discussion. So um, I hope that I can bring some some worthy research to your hands. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we have uh, we had some technical issues there, so we are now handing back and forth um, my, the same microphone. So that's fun. Um, and then last will be me here. Um, my relationship to the show is I think probably I probably have the least relationship out of the four of us. Um, it was on TV. Um, but I think like my parents, they would, it would be on a lot, but it also was on a lot alongside like house or like meta or ER. I kind of lump it in with ER in my head, which like, you know, up until again, dating, dating, uh, Chimera here where I started to, you know, see it all the time because, you know, she would kind of have it all on all the time. Um, it was just kind of something that like my parents would watch and I'd kind of be, I think the only thing I really thought of about Law and Order was it's the one that also shows the legal part too, not just the cops catching people. And that was kind of like what I thought of it. And then SVU was like, that's the one that you know has a bunch of uh, you know stuff that I'm not allowed to know about in it. And <laughs> but as like time has gone on, I would say like police procedure, like noir, noir adjacent stuff is just always kind of like been what I've been into, like like. You know, very early age, I liked like Fargo and a lot of Coen brothers that have like kind of the, the noir angle to a lot of that stuff. And, you know, a crime, crime movies overall are just like something I always like. And so this is a genre I, I, I like a lot. And so when I come to SVU, I come to it kind of as a, a fan of, you know, that, that kind of police procedural or, you know, fan of, of murder mysteries and, uh, crime, 
crime stuff. But, you know, I, I think I, I've only started to really watch a lot of SVU in the last few years. Um, but aside from that, like what I what I'm into a lot of the times is like especially like exploitation films, for instance, which um, I think is going to be a reoccurring theme about how I interpret Dick Wolf and kind of a thing I'm going to push is that I think of Dick Wolf as kind of an exploitation director in, you know, the classic example of that being like Roger Corman used to make these like movies where he'd, he'd find a headline about something you know, crazy that happened somewhere. And while everyone was talking at, about it, he would try to within three weeks, put out a movie that would be like, you know, I don't know, set, it's, you know, ba- vaguely related to that headline. Um, and I mean, what is the rip from the headlines thing with Dick Wolf aside from exactly that, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of, um, you know, going to be a reoccurring thing. I think Dick Wolf also, you know, is indebted to the giallo genre out of Italy, which is, you know, a, a genre that's heavily associated with exploitation movies. Um, you know, that was the, uh, the grimy, the seedy, the kind of, um, sleazy crime novels that were written, written in, you know, in Italy in the, you know, post-war era and, uh, you know, Dick Wolf's indebted to all that. So I, I guess I'm coming at it like probably the least fan of SUVU, but I like it and I like, and I, I have fun with it and, uh, I'm more just interested in the genre around it. And I'm excited to use SVU as kind of like an excuse to explore all these weird genres and then look back at SVU and go like, how did this get created with all these influences? So yeah. What, uh, what else do we need to cover here before we... Oh yeah, so let's. We might as well for the last little chunk of this here dive into a little bit about uh, Dick Wolf and SVU. What we kind of know about it, um, you know, it's 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 a show that comes out of a historical context, right? And then we forget, we kind of can forget that about shows, especially like S- shows like SVU, that just become kind of you know synonymous with crime, you know, police procedural. You know, it's so om- omnipresent that like we kind of can forget about it as a thing that comes out of a specific time with specific attitudes from that time. Josh gestured at this a little bit by mentioning nine 11, you know, this is predominantly a show that takes place in like the politics of the nineties brought over into the Bush era. That is what like law and order often is. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, well, yeah. Cause you could kind of view the, uh, I guess cause Dick Wolf is, you know, wants to be seen as a liberal in most respects. So like, I think law, law and order is very much like a, a liberals look at a very, uh, post Reagan society. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, it's, yeah. It, like, I mean, that early stage is, is it, you know, it comes out of the Reagan era. Uh, so S SVU coming out in 1999, uh, it's, it's the Clinton era era of the show, uh, appropriately. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I did it right. It, 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 yeah, that's where it has its roots, uh, and it has uh, somehow managed to stay relevant through a few more presidential administrations. Yeah. yeah, I almost feel like the only time it's starting to really crash and burn and not be able to respond to the current moment has been after 2020, but that'll be um, a few episodes down the road before we get into that, I think. But and um, considering, I think, you know, oh God. Uh, 2020, I it a lot of police media post 2020 just doesn't know how to it doesn't how, know how to, to respond to it yeah. act or respond I, another cop show but on the comedy and brooklyn 99 a yeah. show i've never watched before but many people have 
famously kind of petered out trying to figure out because it was written by you know a bunch of good liberals they they wanted to like how do we and it was written by directed and starred people that didn't want to contribute and they kind of were trying to figure out well how do we both have fun about like the idea of being a lame cop but also the inherent injustices within the policing Mm -hmm. institution in the united states and they didn't really find an easy answer to that even drama shows like you know we own this city tried to do this like it tried to be both a reform show and also be a show that's a police post 2020 i think that most police procedurals outside of disco elysium and true detective don't really know what to do anymore absolutely yeah also like it 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 should be worth mentioning that like uh yeah we're going through a lot of our our interest in the show and 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 the sort of critical lenses we want to apply to it um but just a few notes on format i mean i think if it if it isn't clear already i think our approach is going to be topical like this is this is we're not watching the show completely or in order we are picking out episodes that you know are are relevant to some to one of our various interests and we are tying in uh other ancillary material to kind of discuss it so we're gonna be you know it's just episode by episode there's uh you know i'm sure having a completionist's uh you know encyclopedic knowledge of the series is going to help but it you know we're kind of going through it the way it airs these days which is these massive blocks of time on cable so you're it's it's always decontextualized anyway (laughs) even though it is available on streaming to watch in chronological order yeah, I mean, because that's how you experience SVU, at least probably the age that all of us to some degree or another are. It's like you see just a random fucking episode on TV out of context. You don't you don't think of it as like, oh, this is the headline it's connected to originally. It's like Bosnian genocide, I guess. That's what this is about. I don't remember what that is, but I guess I'll watch it. I'm 10. <laughs> yeah, most, um, I think even when they would do reruns of the show, they didn't do it in order. It was always just kind of within the season but the episode format unless it was a specific storyline never particularly mattered oh i've seen it where they'd they'd have uh it would be like two episodes back to back from the same show but it would be different seasons running concurrently so it would be like you watch one episode and then it jumps a few seasons ahead but it's in sequence with what aired the day before oh also (laughs) they did do the they did the season thing because as you know chimera can attest to this um there's a solid two different eras of svu there's the benson and stabler era and then there's the post the shit after yes the benson ascendancy the Benson. The Benson I was trying to be. I, I was the, trying to be. The gaping about hole it, that but. is my heart when Elliot Stabler leaves that part <laughs> yes, of the that, show. I, I, uh, that is a common opinion among. I think everyone who uh, watches SVU that his presence is missed. But I don't know. Yeah, there are like two, and that's the era that I know the most about because that was the era that I grew up with and would watch. But. During reruns, they would have episodes from the Benson Stabler era and then the the Benson Ascendancy. They would have those within like the same block. So you would be watching one episode and then wonder, wait, where where did Stabler go? Yeah, wait, where are we? <laughs> but it also didn't matter because the the format of the show doesn't really need it. It's genius, really. 
I, I want you to know, Jackal, that you bringing up Stabler has prompted Josiah to pull up our Twitter account and follow Chris Maloney. I, I already <laughs> followed him. I brought it up because um, As you I, he has a very funny Twitter account to me. He's very he's funny. Just like, Christopher Maloney is a very funny man. He's got. He's kind of like because he's just naturally a funny guy. He's also like kind of an old guy that doesn't know how Twitter works very well, and he's also like a a pissed off like Occupy Democrat type lib, and it's so yep. awesome because all his posts he are just him being follow. like that. Fucking Trump said this. <laughs> he is the best part of the show. If we ever get a chance, I we have to interview. Christopher Maloney. Chris Maloney. Is, <laughs> oh, I would love that. A, yes. He is an icon of cinema. What, and honestly, he was one of the best things about Law and Order. And it feels strange watching Law and Order without, without him, even though he's been, he took a nine year hiatus from the show. And now he's on his own show. But even there's something weird. It feels off. It feels wrong. If you want a, a, a good glimpse into Maloney's brand of unique humor, watch the show Happy from Sci-Fi. Uh, we will do a Patreon episode about that at some point because he plays an ex and <laughs> New York City cop in that, and it's kind of a vision into what if Detective Sta- Detective what if Detective Stabler was completely insane, as opposed to how he is in Law and Order, right, which is completely emotionally stable. Oh, very. Before we very. get before we get any deeper into the 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 wonderful mind of Chris Maloney, unfortunately, this podcast is about the wonderful mind of Dick Wolf, and I believe Chimera has some notes about Dick Wolf that she wanted to talk about. I do actually. Uh, thank you. Um, I uh, think the question of how Law and Order SVU came about is a central question to our project here. Um, How does Law and Order SVU come about as a show? And how does each episode come about and reflect the attitudes of its period in time? Um, There are three books that I discovered to kick off our research on how Dick Wolf's show about violence against special victims came about. Um, The first book of which is called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must-See TV by Warren Littlefield. And I must say, I only recommend this book if you are interested in the interworking dialogue of television production. Um, otherwise, it's a really boring book. And be <laughs> be grateful that I did the reading for you guys because um, it's pretty boring. Um, but there are two particular quotes in the book that are by Dick Wolf that I would like us to discuss. The first one is Dick Wolf. Most dramas make my skin itch because they give you personal stuff with a soup ladle. When you go into work and look around your office, how many of your colleagues' apartments have you been in? Ours is a workplace show. All we're interested in is what is happening in the 8 to 10 hours when the characters are actually at work. There's also no time. That's why there are no establishing shots, no driving shots, no people walking into buildings. Each half of the show is the equivalent to a normal hour cop show or legal show. You're essentially doing an hour's worth of content in half the time. I grew up on NYPD, the original, and Naked City. Naked City is much more the prototype for Law & Order than anything else on TV. 
The best pictures about conflict are the ones that almost look like news, such as the Battle of Algiers. So there's two questions that this quote kind of invoked in me. Is first, how is a writer who doesn't like to deal with the personal stuff make a show about sexual violence? Like, how does that even land on his desk, right? Not only that, but he wants his show to look like news. He wants his viewers to believe what they're watching as news. That is something he sees as a value to his production. And I think that's very significant. I think also Josiah had something interesting to say about Dick Wolf being interested in the Battle of Algiers. Oh, I mean, I, I don't have anything specific, specific to say about that, but more just like that that's a really, really strange movie for him to be into. Like, I don't know. I, I just think that that's... Um, I don't know. So if, if somebody is not familiar uh, with that movie real quick, uh, go ahead, Josh. Uh, I just, I just want to say like, uh, if, if you're wondering what one has to do with the other, uh, a text I am need to finish reading, uh, Stuart Schrader's badges without borders, uh, on the mm. connection between domestic policing and, uh, foreign counterinsurgency. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A pretty, pretty detailed, uh, bureaucratic history uh yeah yeah kind of connects the dots there so i don't know i was i was pretty uh unfazed uh, there very very intrigued and and uh, also yeah. like yeah a little bit uh like you know oh, oh that makes sense of course he's yeah. gonna cite sure you know of course he's gonna be influenced by battle of algiers because they all are <laughs> yeah well and i and that's that's also true to be clear uh, like battle of algiers is one of those movies that every director says is their favorite movie but also, it's, like, I mean, it's, it, it's a it lives really up to the explicitly hype. communist movie, and that's yeah. what's so weird about it. Like, for me to imagine Dick Wolf watching like this this movie that is not only pro like communist, but like arguably pro terrorism, which is a whole aspect of that movie. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of interesting that the Law and Order guy was so was so interested in that. I don't know. It's the it's the document. It, it's the style. It's the documentary style, and uh, I don't know. There, there's a whole stripe of film and TV guys that just claim not to be interested in politics, and I'm sure Dick Wolf is one of them, or if not now, at some point in his life. The uh, the other quote from this book that I wanted to uh, bring out from Top of the Rock was uh, Dick Wolf also said this about uh, Law and Order. Warren gave me the cancellation notice a year early. He said, "Dick, it's a really good show." Everybody likes it, but there are no women watching. You have to put women in the show. That led to the worst phone call I've ever had to make to Dan Florick. He was the only sane one on the front half of the cast until Jory Orbick came in. I told him he'd done an incredible job. He always showed up on time, never bumped into furniture, was always prepared. He knew his lines. You're fired. It was a terrible, but it changed the show. Apatha Murkerson is still there. Murkerson is still there. It worked out great. The pilot was written 22 years ago, and the reality was that there weren't many women cops at the time, and certainly not many women prosecutors. Now it's about 50-50, but not then. This quote prompted me to question, how is a writer who struggles to attract female viewers able to succeed with Law & Order SVU? That is a show that's watched majorly by women. And how does he pull that off? He he truly accomplishes a impressive feat. I have to say, I give it to Dick Wolf. He went from struggling just a few years earlier um, to attract female viewers with the original Law & Order show 
to flipping around and creating a show that women love. And I think it also captures um, Dick Wolf as exploitation director really well, this whole quote. Because um, I actually, w- listen, her listening to some interviews with him earlier today made me think about um, Dick Wolf kind of similarity to Herschel Gordon Lewis. Who, if you are if you're into exploitation movies, he is usually considered the the godfather of gore, right? He, you know, has a bunch of movies like Blood Feast and all these like drive-in gross-out movies. You know, back in the '70s, '80s, whatever, you would go with your buddies in a you know drive-in and get grossed out at you know you know animal carcasses being shown and gross shit like that. It, it like it, it was that, but part of like his reason for going into that was not an attraction to violence. Like Herschel Gordon Lewis is an advertiser. That's how he got into movies, which is funny because that is also how Dick Wolf got into movies. They, Dick Wolf started as an advertising guy. And uh, I, I know Camara will say something about that in a second. But, um, you know, they, they both have this advertising background. And what Herschel Gordon Lewis did was like in the 60s and 70s, he looked around and he saw that there was an appetite for more violence in movies, but people weren't making gory movies. Movies where, you know, someone gets like stabbed in the stomach and you see their intestines come out. You know what I mean? Like shit like that. No one was making those movies. And so him, a good advertiser, you know, king of the nudie cutie before then, the guy who was like, oh, we can put nudity in movies now. Let's do it. Um, He decides, well, fuck it. Let's put gore in movies. And he became the godfather only because of hitting up the market at the right time. I think there's probably something similar to be said about Dick Wolf and he does he doesn't he's he's a misogynist like let's be real like he's not a he's not a feminist figure by any means not he at did all. see that he did see that there is not a cop show that that women like and he fixed that I, I, I do think it's interesting that you mentioned that Dick Wolf started his career in advertising because I, I did watch this interview earlier today uh, about Dick Wolf and, and kind of how he got into his career of a television writer. Um, he, t- he told this little story about how he really didn't initially want to go into television. Um, he really does not th- like things that are super long or slow paced. And he has this theory that the best movies are under 90 minutes. And he wants everything to be quick, fast, loaded. He wants things to be punchy, and he's good at editing to make that happen. Um, and he, he got that skill probably from advertising. He, he tells this story about how he didn't want to go into television, but that his agent arranged an opportunity for him to make $7,500 a week, plus additional money for the scripts he writes. So he he was kind of landed with this amazing financial opportunity, and his wife kind of came over uh, when she overheard this conversation with the agent, and she says, he'll be there Monday. And it's, it's you know, she was motivated by um, him being able to get that much money for his writing and you know it turns out his wife was right like they usually are is dick wolf ended up being very successful in television so he has his wife to thank for that truly behind every every great man is a great woman uh that's right you know 
it 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 isn't surprising to me because if you do watch interviews with dick wolf the man is not an interesting person he's very boring and that's he's kind of like and that's why that's what brought up my herschel gordon lewis comparison in my head because herschel gordon lewis is similar he is not interested in the artistry or anything like that of of stuff he is interested in what he could put in a drive-in that would get people to watch and make him a lot of money and he pulled it off really well but if you interview him, he's always like, he's not going like, oh, um, you know, I was just really interested in the concepts of the body or whatever, you know, and and really ex- like Cronenberg talking about gore, for instance. He's not doing that. Herschel Gordon Lewis is like, well, you know, the teenagers at the time, they really wanted uh, they really wanted violence in their movies, you know, <laughs> and that's Dick Wolf. I mean, yeah, Dick Wolf that, sounds the same I think way. That he's that's dry. What... He's an advertiser. I think what's interesting about comparing him to Lewis versus someone like Roger Corman is I think that Corman at least has some appreciation for the form and is having like a fun time about it. Lewis kind of seemed, from what I had said, which is I I have seen less of his work than yours, but I have seen, it seems very phoned in, like a very by the numbers. It totally is. very by the numbers methodology and that's kind of how it seems with dick wolf it's a it's an approach to schlock via business versus approaching schlock as if it's some kind of art both produce good things i i would say because there are good roger corman movies and there are good law and order episodes and ultimately what it's proven is that roger corman was a good businessman that got movies made and they made money and dick wolf got several it started a media empire a entire franchise of entertainment that is still going strong to this day with at least several other new spin-offs in or at least were in pre-production before the joint SAG-AFTRA and Writers Guild strikes. Uh, I will say if if you're interested in the visual component of Law and Order, um, this is the second book that I I picked up for the research on this intro- introduction to the show. Um, is called Law and Order Crime Scenes. It's by Dick Wolf, and the photos are by Jessica Burstein. And um, what's really interesting about this book is um, I recommend this book if you're someone who is interested in photography. It is a book about or it's a book depicting what Dick Wolf would have liked Law and Order to look like. He wanted Law and Order to be black and white and he wanted it to have a very certain gritty, dark aesthetic that he unfortunately didn't get because he was appealing to modern television audiences. So there is kind of a component of Dick Wolf that we don't get to see in Law & Order SVU. So if you're interested in um, getting to know that side of Dick Wolf and his interests, I really recommend this book. Um, It is a coffee table style book um, that, you know, we kind of have just laying around um, that sometimes we take a look at these photographs um, where there are staged murder scenes and they look much, much more dark and more real than what we actually get in Law & Order, um, the original show or in Law & Order SVU. Um, In fact, uh, I think that these photographs remind me of the work of Dorothea Lange. Um, who was a Depression-era photographer, Um, and she documented internment camps. 
um, which were a state-organized form of violence instead of interpersonal violence like Law and Order SVU. Um, but the kind of harsh grittiness of these photographs is, is, is very interesting in how this photographer is able to portray violence in such a, such a striking way. So if you're interested in photography, I definitely recommend you check out Law and Order uh, Crime Scenes. I was going to say that Dorothy Lang uh, comparison is not, uh, not far off, actually, because we talked about, um, we just talked about him as being interested in the documentary style, like Battle of Algiers and shit like that. Dorothy Lang was really tied to the documentary style and the development of street photography during the Great Depression, specifically, um, I believe under, God, is it Walker Evans? I am blanking on the name, but yeah, there was, the U.S. government paid a bunch of people to go do documentary pictures of of people throughout the you know the great depression and it became really influential as a as a style of photography um and as it's probably one of the only artistic movements that i actually know a little bit about and have a bunch of bunch of coffee table books of street (laughs) photography so i I quite like that comparison but i uh i think you had one more book you want to mention and then we need to we need to wrap up here so why don't you do that real quick and then let's uh move to the end all right the last book that i wanted uh, people to consider taking a look at um, while listening to our show is Abolition for the People, the Movement for a Future Without Policing and Prisons, edited by Colin Kaepernick. This is one of my favorite books. I'm a big Colin Kaepernick fan, um, so I really enjoy the essays here. Uh, the Mark Anthony Neal essay that I talked about earlier uh, in the depictions of Odafin Tutuola, that was also from this book. Um, The essay I wanted to talk about uh, lastly um, was some data that was researched and conceptualized by Tamara K. Knopper. She says that crime TV shows depict cops as heroes and the criminal justice system as race neutral. The writers of police procedurals are overwhelmingly white, meaning that even if people of color are depicted, their feelings, motivations, and behaviors are disproportionately white to an overwhelming degree. No people of color writers on Law & Order SVU, which compares worse than most police procedurals. And it only features on average three people of color per episode, also comparing worse than other police procedurals, which is shocking because one of the main characters, Odafin Tutuola, is black. So how do they only ever have two other people of color per episode on average? That That is just insane. Insane, insane. Chicago uh, PD, a notoriously violent show, uh, is ahead of law and order in the Department of People of Color writers. Um, And so is SWAT. Uh, SWAT actually does the best in comparison of police procedurals with 42% people of color writers on their staff. Yeah. So it's it's just um, something that we need to consider as we move forward with the show is that the show does not do a great job at depicting people of color, um, either reflected in their writing staff or in in the characters that they actually write. So that's that's something that uh, likely we'll all be pretty critical of going forward. Awesome. Um, well, I think I think that's about all we we have to say for this episode. We planned this to be like twenty minutes long, and we have this is just a full thing now, um, which yeah. is great. I like that. I like that. It's it's good. I also say if you are uh, someone who does not agree with our perspective of politics and stuff like that, I I am impressed with you for getting this far. Stick with us and see what you think as things go on, because I think we have interesting shit to say, even if uh, 
even if you do not vibe with our political persuasions. We're probably going to strike a much less confrontational tone on this one just because of the subject matter, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the next oh, coming boy. up, oh, the yeah. first episode after this is, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have some, yeah, <laughs> stuff to say. Um, I don't uh, know. I mean... I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, right. There are other projects of ours where if we did mention people with political differences listening to the content, I would have just without hesitation said, go fuck yourself. But uh, <laughs> which I mean, no, no, stick around. No, stick around. This is about a TV show. And yeah, I, I hope that. Uh, yeah, I I hope that if you are from a opposite political persuasion from us a lot. And you've stuck it to the end of this. I hope that you do stick around to hear what we have to say. Even if you if you come out of this show and these episodes and you are still firmly in the persuasion that there are good apples, I will at least respect you for hearing us Giving out. it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I encourage you to listen to the podcast what we have to say, and more specifically, the sources that we bring up, such as the books and articles that we will bring up, I please, even if you you come from the idea that the police have done nothing wrong, every situation in which the police have, have <laughs> killed an innocent it. person, an innocent black person, they were justified, even if that's the persuasion that you're coming from, I implore you to read the books and articles that we talk about and just give it a chance to see how the other side sees it. Especially that Colin Kaepernick book, man. That is a good collection of essays. Check that out. I was going to say, the instant you said that name, you, we probably lost like a several listeners. <laughs> and uh, whatever, you can go away. Like, you can deal with that. Um, if, if that caused you to leave this show, if you're, then if you're still mad I, about Colin Kaepernick in, in 2023, you've got other problems. Yeah. Dude, I are you okay? Do you need to talk to somebody? Is how how's it going on the family front? Did the divorce go through? Oh, <laughs> uh, we're also mean spirited assholes. Um, uh, oh, yeah, so <laughs> so much. Uh, we should probably go around and quickly say where people could follow us on social media and stuff, and also the show. So. Uh, oh, fuck it. Well, wait, I go first on that. Sorry, we're getting used to this new podcast here. Mm -hmm. I'm Josiah. You can follow me at Josiah W. Sutton on Twitter.com and uh, all sorts of other stuff. So, yeah, uh, th there'll be links in the show notes and stuff. Uh, check out Mammonberg if you uh, if you do already have that leftist politics leaning um, so you won't be inflamed by us uh, making mean-spirited jokes. Check us out. Um, and Chimera, where can they find you? Um, I can be found on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Kelliteris444. So that is spelled K-E-L-L-I-T-O-R-I-S 444. Thank you, and I appreciate the follows. Amazing. Um, Josh. Uh, yeah, uh, my online presence is kind of friends only right now, so uh, not really plugging anything. Odd Splice still exists on the internet. Go subscribe to, to that, listen to the archive. Uh, I'm sure, you know, depending on, on how this project goes, uh, you know, I'm willing to negotiate in the future. But uh, for now, if I don't talk to you in real life, I'm not really interacting with you. So Josh is mysterious. You have to you have yeah. to move Cult to Chicago to actually mystique. have a conversation with them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you got to visit at least. No. <laughs> I, on the other hand, will talk Law and Order in the Twitter DMs all day long. So feel free. 
you can't you can't talk to Josh unless you've had a shot of Malort in uh, in China. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but Kelly will talk. Kelly will talk to anyone. So <laughs> I've also adopted uh, Josh's friends only format in terms of uh, online interactions. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, it's pretty good. Lots of lots of saved headaches. Um, mm. So you can't really find me anywhere right now. If you have a blue sky, you could follow me at Jackal Jackal on Blue Sky. However, until that opens up, uh, you could check out Mammonberg to hear more from me there. Otherwise, uh, we'll see. For now, though, I kind of like closing off. And uh, uh, on top of that, you could follow the show on Twitter at GoodApplesPod. Um, and you can email us at thegoodapplespod at gmail.com. And maybe we'll read it. Maybe we'll read it. Who knows? I would like to say if anyone out there has a favorite Law & Order episode that's listening and they're interested in being a guest, feel free to send a little email our way and let us know, you know, what's your favorite episode. And if you'd like to, to hear us talk about it or hear yourself talk about it, uh, you know, send an email our way and we're happy to consider those. And uh, I think that's it. I think that's all we have to say. So we will sign off. Um, I've been Josiah. I'm Kamara. I'm Josh. And I'm Jackal. And have a have a wonderful time. We'll need to come up with a send off, but I'm sending off for now. Bye. Dun 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 dun. Pretty good. All right. I don't know. Um, I mean, I can do the. Uh, I don't know. I can do something with that gnarly guitar tone. We'll just do the. Uh, yeah. Uh, what if What if a death metal band did the uh, Law and Order soundtrack? <laughs> Very different vibe. Very different.